Welcome to the 10th Muse podcast. We're your hosts, I'm Helena. And I'm Siobhan. And we're here to tell you all about the women through history that we think deserve the coveted title of the 10th Muse. So hold on, what does the 10th Muse actually mean? Well, in Greek mythology, there were nine muses who were goddesses of poetic inspiration, who influenced the greatest creators and philosophers through history. The famous philosopher Plato once called the female poet Sappho the 10th muse because he believed her talents were so great that she was worthy of that title. That's right. So we're here to talk about a unique collection of women through history that have done amazing things. From activists to artists, scientists to singers, these women are not the women you already know. No. Instead, these are the women who we think should join Sappho's ranks and deserve the status of the 10th muse. We hope you enjoy hearing about these women as much as we do. Hello and welcome to episode three of the 10th Muse podcast. I'm Helena. I'm Siobhan. We're going to get right in. So this week I have a woman that you may not have heard of, but you know you'll have obviously seen her biggest kind of piece of work. So get, do you're you not you messing know... around. You're no, I'm, go- I'm going straight into it. <laughs> straight into it. Not messing straight around. Into it. Okay, sorry. Do I know what? Obviously... The Brooklyn Bridge. Everyone has seen the Brooklyn Bridge. I've walked across the Brooklyn Bridge. Have you? Well, that's even better. Do you know who it was constructed by? I mean, I'm going to guess it was a woman, but no, I would have no idea. Well, yes. So partially constructed by this woman. So my 10th muse this week is Emily Warren Roebling, who was basically, she was born um, in... New York, September 23rd, 1843. Her family were quite a prominent family in the area. Her her dad was a, a state assemblyman and a town supervisor. And her brother was a commander in the US Army in the American Civil War. Wow. I'm just going to kind of go a bit biographical. So we're going to start off with kind of what she did when she was younger. So she travelled to Washington when she was younger, and when she was a teenager, Um, to the Georgetown Academy of the Visitation, which is a really prestigious school. She studied history, astronomy, French, and algebra, um, in addition to more traditional female skills like housekeeping and needlework. So she was obviously very intelligent and wanted to kind of push herself further than the traditional role of the female homemaker Mm -hmm. and things like that with her, well, how she wanted to study history and, and French and algebra. She met her husband, Washington Roebling, during the war because he was an engineering officer on her brother's staff um, and they got married in 1865. So her husband is a key character in this and his dad is a key character. Okay. So after they got married in 1865, her husband's dad, her father-in-law, he was already kind of the chief engineer or, you know, the architect on this project of the Brooklyn Bridge, which at the time was um it was thought to be the best or like the biggest the longest mm-hmm. architectural feat at the time okay um, it was going to be called the great east river bridge to connect brooklyn and manhattan i feel like brooklyn bridge is a bit more snappy a little bit less of a mouthful <laughs> yeah a hundred percent so her father-in-law john augustus sent emily and her husband well sent her husband to europe to study there was a, a particular engineering technique called um, a caisson, which was was it's like a pressurized container, not container, but like so at the bo- in order to con- to build foundations for bridges or things that are underwater, mm-hmm. it's a pressurized kind of area 
that allows you to work in there and build that. Obviously, it keeps out all the water. So if you're building bridges that mm -hmm. cross a huge river, you're going to need all these, these caissons. So they went to study them in Europe. At the time, you know, Emily was pregnant, so she had her son in 1867, John Augustus Roebling II, right. he named after yep. the father-in-law. In 1869, however, there was an accident and her father-in-law, John Augustus, had his foot crushed by pilings in the Brooklyn oh. Pier um, when a boat came into dock and he got tetanus and he died, unfortunately. Oh, God. Um, so her husband, Washington Roebling, took over as chief ar like chief engineer, chief architect, all that, um, which was a, an amazing feat. Mm -hmm. However, so have you ever heard of something called the bends? No. So it's an illness that is it's compression sickness, essentially. Right, okay. So spending all that time in a highly pressurized caisson to build these foundations, you'd get a lot of like severe attacks, which... They kind of, the symptoms were like, they'd leave you partially paralyzed. They could leave you blind, God, deaf, okay. mute. So it was like a really, really bad, like. I guess like, yeah, being in like a highly pressurized container mm. is probably not good. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So her husband began to suffer from that pretty quickly. Right. In the kind of, in his application as the chief engineer. Mm hmm. He wasn't the only one though. There was like tons and tons of obviously documented illnesses so the, the the reports that at least two other men died from similar like know. illnesses. Yeah. However, there's you know because they essentially they didn't have any safety nets, they didn't have safety harnesses or anything. There are so many like falls mm -hmm. or like you know, people were crushed by machinery. So there's so many undocumented deaths and like injuries as well. So it was really really dangerous because it took 14 years to construct. Wow. It was like, a huge huge project. Yeah yeah definitely. Which is actually to be fair for 14 years it's almost impressive that only two dozen people were <laughs> reported to have died like yeah, not that more people that should have died but uh <laughs> yeah it's a really impressive low body count there you know <laughs> in 14 years you think it'd be hundreds i think it'd be thousands <laughs> oh my god um, okay yeah so unfortunately obviously he became really really ill mm -hmm. um emily was his like primary caregiver from around 1872 because he couldn't look after himself so they had their home in, in New Jersey, in Trenton, where there was, like, a steel cable factory, which um, supplied a lot of the, the like, the materials for the build. Right. So, you know, obviously it was a very industrial kind of place at the time. They they had a couple of houses. Um, they also had a house um, in the Brooklyn Heights, and Washington used to sit at the window with a telescope so he could, like, watch everything that was happening. Right. And during this time, as, you know, he, as Emily became her husband's chief caregiver, she also became essentially the substitute chief architect wow, and engineer. Okay. Yeah. Because she had to, although in practice it was still her husband, her name, mm -hmm. her husband's name was on it, but she oversaw everything. So she worked with laborers, she oversaw and like negotiated material supplies, oversaw contracts and acted as a liaison between Washington and the board of trustees. So there was a lot of like corrupt Mm -hmm. politicians and stuff around at the time that had tried to oust her husband from the project oh, okay really yeah right which obviously like i'm not sure if it was more of a pride thing mm -hmm. to keep them going yeah because obviously like he was ill he couldn't do it and i think they obviously didn't want a woman taking oh, on forbid. this cheap i know god forbid god forbid so i think i think it was probably largely that while her husband was still 
the chief engineer in practice it meant she could then have the influence and she could yeah. do that whereas if they got rid of him she wouldn't have been able to work on it and no. they would have hired a new yeah so you man. need his name on it for her to be able to do any of this stuff yeah okay. so and you know it seems like she was quite happy to obviously she you know she loved her husband mm-hmm. it was it wasn't like um she didn't begrudge that he was ill obviously she looked after him and she also ran this amazing project which was you know you'd never as a woman in the late 1800s been able to do that no definitely not so she displayed a lot of she was like very proficient in construction issues obviously she'd been with her husband in europe Mm -hmm. as he was learning about these caissons so she had a lot of knowledge about that as well. She's obviously able to apply her intelligence yeah. to the project. It's obviously um, really well, well read if she studies a massive range of subjects like that. Exactly, yeah. And people started to really notice that. A lot of the men that she worked with started to notice that she was really good and like mm-hmm. she was you know, ideal for the role. Many kind of observers gave her the duties of the chief engineer because they were like well she's doing it so they just that's kind of amazing though yeah men on the ground just sort of let her get on with it they're not yeah offended in some way that they're being told what to do by a woman they're just working with her that's kind of incredible exactly so while the people on the ground thought you know it was great obviously there's still i think the mayor of brooklyn at the time wanted to oust her husband as i said before right but she she kept trying to reassure the like top officials that he could still manage the project was she sort of not letting on that she's running the show it's unclear okay so uh, there's reports that he still had a very sharp mind Mm -hmm. despite all this because even though he couldn't quite see properly right could still picture it all in his mind's eye he still had the the image of the the bridge in his in his head so he he was you know he's still able to contribute and to you know as Emily was helping him, he would have been able to advise Emily mm-hmm. as she was like the main um, kind of hands-on person as chief engineer or acting chief engineer. <laughs> so as I said, it was 14 years in the making and on its completion, it was immediately proclaimed the eighth wonder of the world Yeah, because it was a, a, an amazing feat at the time. It, it was like the only it was the first bridge to be built with steel cables and it was the longest sub- suspension bridge yeah. in the world it takes forever to bloody walk across exactly <laughs> i think we got halfway and then turned around because it was just it <laughs> takes forever you're like well we're not walking all the way to brooklyn so we just turned around <laughs> about halfway it's so long yeah so it's like obviously that's a massive feat when if you think of like there's a lot of obviously cable suspension bridges now yeah and they would have taken their lead from the Brooklyn Bridge project mm-hmm. and from Emily Roebling's, um, Emily Warren Roebling's, you know, her expertise and her yeah. ability to just take on the challenge. A lot of biographers of the bridge and of the male Roeblings, they often commented on on Emily, really, really praise, they were very praising of Emily. Mm-hmm. So there's a biography of um, Washington Roebling, Emily's husband, by Erica Wagner. And she said, I don't think that the Brooklyn Bridge would be standing were it not for her. She was absolutely integral to its construction. Yeah, it so, sounds like it. Yeah, it literally wouldn't have got finished because no. two of its main architects had, you know, died or become severely incapacitated so they couldn't carry on however obviously as it was a family kind of firm a family project 
it would have set it back so much more time to have someone have like a new contractor come mm. in. So it makes sense for Emily to take it on. And, you know, it makes sense financially and also in terms of they all know the plans. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it does make sense. It um, does. It's just so radical, though, if you think about it in that time period that that just... It's baffling me that she just sort of got to carry on doing it. I and, know. And no one really... I guess if she's framing it like, oh, my husband's still chief like in charge mm. and and she's framing it that way with like higher ups, I guess maybe that's how she sort of got away with it, if you want to word it like that. But it's kind of, I don't know, I'm wrapping my head around the fact she just sort of helped build this bridge and mm. no one bat an eyelid, really. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like the thought of, you know, from, from what we know of, of women in the late 1800s, to have such a, a high power position such as mm. that, like literally on one of the, you know the largest um suspension bridge in the world to have mm. that kind of role that influence but also to have people respect her yeah. and to think that she's done an amazing job mm. and to have praise like it wouldn't have got completed without her she was integral to this mm. you know you just don't hear of that you just <laughs> don't hear of it so it's crazy it is very very impressive she um in 1898 she wrote a letter to her son years and years after the brooklyn bridge was built she said i have more brains common sense and know how generally than have any two engineers, civil or uncivil. And but for me, the Brooklyn Bridge would never have had the name Roebling in any way connected with it. Which I think is yes. just the that's it to a T. She's yes. you know, she's an intelligent woman and she knew her worth mm -hmm. and she took on the challenge yeah. really, really well. When it finally opened on May twenty fourth, eighteen eighty three, there was, you know, great fanfare, there were fireworks, there was a huge big um, celebration and Emily was the first to cross it and she crossed it by carriage carrying a rooster <laughs> wait <laughs> yep a rooster with a sign what? of good luck okay. so she she carried this rooster okay. across the Brooklyn Bridge for good luck oh my goodness okay well I should have carried a rooster across maybe that's the secret yeah for life. I think I've missed a trick there everyone if you want to cross the Brooklyn Bridge <laughs> take a rooster Take a rooster. Oh my god! All Maybe all your all your dreams will come true. I didn't know what you were gonna say then. <laughs> I just didn't expect rooster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, amazing. Yeah, so she crossed it by carriage. She was the first person across. Mm -hmm. After that kind of period of her life had ended, obviously, fourteen years mm. of their lives. She kind of retired. Well, she didn't retire, but she she went back to their family home. She seems like a very family-oriented woman, mm. despite the fact she was very high power and had all the ability to do all these amazing things. Yeah. So there was, um, she used the construction knowledge though, because she, she helped to, well, she supervised the construction of their new family mansion in Trenton, um, New York. Right. Um, or New Jersey even. Now she's just like, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Step so aside. She, and then, so her and her husband kind of they lived there as her husband's health kind of improved a little bit he began to re return to the family business so as you know he could support the family a bit more Emily became really active in social and philanthropic organizations um, including the Daughters of the American Revolution ah uh, yes so she was very interested in like charitable organizations mm -hmm. she also in 1899 received a certificate in business law from the women's law class at New York University Wow. But at the time, they didn't admit women into the main law school, so obviously it was the it was the women's class. Oh, okay. So I think like in um, the UK, like in Britain, how we had the blue stockings in Cambridge mm -hmm. and, and Oxford, I think, and uh, there was 
the I think it was the Edinburgh Seven, which were a group of seven yeah. medical students at Edinburgh University. They were like obviously they were the women's class. They weren't ever yeah. given any. So she was in that class of like the the female law students. Um and then she so that was in eighteen ninety nine. Um, and then after that, she travelled and lectured um, in law until she died, which was only about four years later. So she died in her family home at Trenton in 1903. Oh. Um, she had stomach cancer, unfortunately, but she lived an amazing life. Isn't it always, it's always cancer that takes mm. these women away. I know. Away. So 60 years old, which in, you know, it's not that old, but mm. she's lived a, a really impressive life. She's done amazing yeah, things, definitely. you know, she's supervised this massive yeah it's quite old thing. for those days though yeah in i think comparison to, i mean that's tragically young now i think yeah it's like that that's no age but i think back then that's still quite impressive mm-hmm. at like turn of the century that's i think as well because she, she only had one child mm-hmm. it allowed her to you know a lot of medical issues for women at the time were due to like childbirth and yeah pregnancy. absolutely so having one child meant you know she didn't have the risk mm-hmm. but also she could then you know carry on with her construction pursuits yeah, and yeah. like have be be a career woman which is you know good honor yeah definitely good honor so that is emily warren roebling um a pretty impressive woman by yeah. any accounts which you can obviously tell from her own letters but also the you know the way people talk about her in biographies from the time mm-hmm. so contemporary biographies but also from like modern day biographies so she was commended uh, in a New York Times um, article uh, called Overlooked, which has obituaries of loads and loads of women that have done remarkable things. So wow. very, very fitting for the podcast. Yeah, definitely. Um, you should link that somewhere. Uh, yeah, I will, actually, because yeah. it's, it's really interesting. We'll put that in the description. 100%. Um, so I think it's updated quite, quite a lot, quite frequently. I think the most recent updates are actually from earlier last month, so... Well, actually, this month. So really frequently, yeah. Yeah, really frequently. So it's it's definitely worth a read. There's Mm -hmm. a really big bit. It's got, like, Marsha P. Johnson, Ida B. Wells, Ada Lovelace is in that. Oh, no, maybe you shouldn't read it, people, because you're going to steal all of our... I know, all of our All women we're going to tell you. (laughs) Oops. But, yeah, so she she has been commended long after her death, which, you know, rightly so. Yeah, definitely. You know, she shouldn't just be known for Washington Roebling's wife Mm. or... She was, you know, integral to the Brooklyn Bridge and many, many other suspension bridges took heed from that. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say she's she's my 10th muse because she stepped up to the plate yeah. when everything was against her. People were trying to oust her husband. Her husband's also ill and, you know, I, I assume his his life was yeah. not exactly secure. You know, he could have died. Yeah. Um, her father-in-law had died. So the thought, that you know, must have been a really stressful and yeah, scary you're dealing with all that at home and then but she stepped up to the plate she knew her worth she knew how intelligent she was she'd mm-hmm. also learned when her and her husband went to europe and she knew the construction she knew the ideas of it so she she took that on she took that in her stride and and really took a hold of the project and the fact that she knew she was more intelligent than yeah. half of the the general engineers she like knew her worth and she needed to just step up. Definitely. And, and yeah. she did. She she literally managed all the contracts. She like negotiated to get the materials. She, you know, placated the city officials. That's insane. So yeah. she's a really impressive woman for all of those reasons mm-hmm. and more. And to, to think that that so there's now a plaque 
um, at the Brooklyn Bridge commemorating all three of the Roeblings. Okay. Which is great that she's on it. However, it still feels a bit like she's been shortchanged considering she did the majority of the work. She did the, the majority work. of the work. Yeah. yeah. I think, though, that alone, though, that's pretty incredible. And I think, you know, anyone listening, if you ever walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, now you know that there's a woman involved. And exactly. I wish I knew that walking across. I think that would have been, that'd have been really cool to just yeah. imagine, like, someone... To just see it in, around you. Like, I've never been yeah. to Brooklyn, but, like, obviously I've seen pictures, I've seen videos of the Brooklyn yeah. Bridge. And just to see that, like, such an impressive feat mm-hmm. of engineering and you know something that connects manhattan to brooklyn obviously mm. you said it's so so long it probably like I, I imagine maybe when you're driving it it's not as long yeah but in, in terms of walking it i mean it was really hot when we were there as well and we got to halfway i think i'm pretty sure my mom and sister stopped way before me and my dad were like we're gonna cross we're gonna it keep going and we i think we only got about halfway yeah. we were like oh listen why are we walking to brooklyn just to walk back to manhattan like there's, yeah. no, there's no need so we yeah. just turned around but yeah it's it's an really impressive site when you're there and then it's also now set obviously in amongst new york city in terms of you when you're walking back towards manhattan you're looking at all these massive skyscrapers mm-hmm. and like you know really modern like modern new york yeah and you're on this kind of little bit of history which is yeah it's, it's still really impressive yeah. it's not like it sort of bows down around what's around it it kind of still stands, stands up out. on its own yeah yeah and yeah now to know that there was a woman involved that's mm. pretty cool it's definitely a big like a big up to all the <laughs> women in construction to say yeah, like you know, definitely you can do it yeah don't let those men shout you down no step up and shout out my cousin emily <laughs> yeah yeah i love it yeah mm-hmm. i think okay. she's a well-deserved attempt to use there thank you. Well I, hope, I, hope you I hope you like that that was really interesting but yeah i know it's kind of crazy i thought she was really interesting i'd, I'd never heard the name before no not never when you started i was like who like yeah what is, which i know that's the whole point of this podcast yeah. but I think usually we're a bit like, oh, I vaguely might have yeah. heard of her or heard of the people she was associated with or heard of the husband or whatever. But yeah, no, never heard of her. And that's that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you like that, listeners. And <laughs> I hope, Siobhan, you like that. I did, yeah. Yeah. Okay. On to yours now. Oh, okay. Siobhan's been bigging this up. She has... I'm excited She knows a lot about this person. I, I don't know who this is, obviously. I'm going to take you on a history of American music now. Which Ooh, I'm excited. Anyone who knows me knows I'm a bit of a nerd for this stuff and knows that this is kind of what I spent my degree, <laughs> my undergrad, concentrating on was American music. It was the modules I found the most interesting. I did my whole dissertation around music and music videos and stuff. This is what I find. This is like my favorite hobby and everything. So anyway, I've got some questions for you to start off, Eleanor. Yes, I'm going to quiz you first. Who is the king of rock and roll? Well, I would have said Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this, I mean, this is so obviously Elvis is the king. So there's like Little Richard. He's called the architect of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Les Paul, electric guitarist, mm-hmm. obviously. Chuck Berry, he's the father of rock and roll. Wow. Okay. There's, so there's a whole list. Right. But like, obviously, Elvis is like the king. Who's the queen of rock and roll? Who would you say? That's hard. I would maybe say, I want to say Debbie Harry. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Or... Maybe Stevie Nicks. Yeah, she's on my list. Yeah. I love Stevie Nicks. Love Shout Stevie, out Stevie Nicks. Nicks. Um, I hope she listens to this one day. Women, women. I'll give you another one. There's Janis Joplin as well. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to tell you about someone who's sort of known as the godmother of rock and roll. Okay. In theory, she sort of, in, well, she did invent rock and roll, in my opinion. I'm going to tell you about Sister Rosetta Tharp. 
Have you ever heard of her? No, I've never heard of this I'm person. I'm so excited to tell you about her. So basically, she she was a singer and guitar player, and her guitar style blended melody-driven urban blues with traditional folk arrangements, and it incorporated like this pulsating swing that was a precursor to rock and roll. Oh, cool! So she was eventually like a gospel singer, but she played she like shreds the electric guitar. Well, I guitar. was gonna say because you said sister at yeah. the start. Was she like? A nun? No, 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 she wasn't a nun. No, no, she wasn't, but she grew up in this, like, in, like, evangelical troops. She taught right. gospel music. Yeah, it was, she was gospel singer. Okay. Um, But, to put it this way, she came before Elvis, she came before Johnny Cash, Chuck Berry or Little Richard, and her influence on them is what shaped them as artists. Wow. So they've all said, like, so, for example, Little... That is an amazing yeah, credit. Yeah, exactly. All these massive names in music that I can tell you about, and you would be like, oh, yeah, I've heard of Elvis, mm. obviously. Yeah, so like Little Richard, for example, referred to her as his favourite singer as a child and his greatest influence. Wow. I've got a little story before I go into it, which is in 1947, she heard like Little Richard sing before her concert at the Mason City Auditorium and she invited him on stage to sing with her. And it was his first public performance outside of the church. And after the show, she paid him and that's what inspired him to become a performer. Really? Yeah. Wow. So basically you can thank Rosetta for like Tutti Frutti and all of Little Richard's biggest songs. Yeah. And, like, Johnny Cash said she was his favourite singer growing up. Chuck Berry said his entire career was just one long Rosetta Tharp impersonation. Wow. So that's that's who I'm going to tell you about today. Okay, I'm just going to move this microphone slightly. Um, but, yeah, that's who I'm going to tell you about today. So I'll give you sort of a brief biography of her first. So Sister Rosetta Tharp was born Rosetta Newbin on the 20th of March 1915 in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, to Katie Bell Newbin and Willis Atkins, who were cotton pickers. Mm-hmm. Her father was a singer, and that's all I can tell you about him. There's not really anything known about him. Her mother was a singer and a mandolin player, an evangelist and a preacher for the Church of God in Christ. So she starts to sing and learns to play guitar aged four under the stage name Little Rosetta Newbin. And in 1921, by the age of six, she's performing gospel music with her mother at churches, and she's traveling in an evangelical troupe that toured across the American South. Wow. So she's known as a musical prodigy really young. Mm-hmm. Um, She's billed as a singing guitar playing miracle. That's how wow. she's billed. <laughs> which, to be fair, when you, watch, when you watch her play guitar, you see why. Okay. So Rosetta and her mother then moved to Chicago in the mid-20s, where she becomes fairly famous because, obviously, prominent black female guitarists are, like, rare. Yeah. I, at that time period, I couldn't name you too many others. I definitely couldn't. And if you can't, who's done all this research on it? <laughs> there's, all, there's other singers that we get to later on, but with her age and the fact she was basically a prodigy is, is crazy. Yeah. So in 1934, at the age of 19, she marries Thomas Tharp, who is a preacher in that church that her and her mother are a part of, mm-hmm. um, the Church of God in Christ. And it, but it doesn't last long. And in 1938, she leaves him and moves to New York City, where she plays with Duke Ellington and other like oh, massive musicians. I have musicians. heard of Duke Ellington. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. can't have not heard of Duke yeah. Ellington. And but she keeps his surname as her stage name, so that's why right. she's like Sister Rosetta oh, Tharp. She yeah. keeps that. And in 1938, age 23, she records for the first time. She does four sides for Decca Records, backed by Lucky Melinda's Jazz Orchestra. Mm-hmm. These songs were like instant hits and established Tharp as an overnight sensation and one of, uh, one of the first commercially successful gospel recording artists. Wow. The song Rock Me, in particular, on this recording, influenced many rock and roll singers, such as Elvis Presley, Little Richard, and Jerry Lee Lewis. So that song in particular, sort of off that collection, yeah. is, is the one that influences a lot of people. Wow. And by her 20s, she's sort of hit her stride in New York. She's performing often at Harlem's Cotton Club in October 1938 with Cab Calloway. 
So I'm going to take you on a little sidebar journey. Yeah. For a second about the Cotton Club. Have you ever heard of the Cotton Club? Or is this no. very music nerdy <laughs> to it's know very, about? Well, maybe it's just my music ignorance for yeah. that kind of time but period. No, I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like I only know about it because I've studied okay. this sort of thing. But basically, so the Cotton Club, for those of you who don't know, it's a New York City nightclub and it was opened from 1923 to 1940. Mm. And so it operates during the USA's like Prohibition era, yeah. uh, the Jim Crow era. Is it like a speakeasy? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me yeah. that. Sort of. It's, <laughs> there's lots of different establishments. We can go on a whole other side tangent about <laughs> Prohibition. I did a whole thing on Prohibition. So it's there's multiple different types of things operating during the Prohibition yeah. era. So there's like speakeasies. There's like, you know, there's different establishments. Some places are above the law. They've like paid off police okay. officers. The Cotton Club was kind of one of them. And then there's places that just if they got busted, that was it. Right. And they cater to different clientele so some are for like white um patrons some are for yeah. black patrons some are for both which is kind of rare so yeah this is it's also a focal point during the harlem renaissance i don't know if you've, yeah, you must have heard I've, of I've that i've heard of the harlem renaissance yeah the literature student in you's heard of that of course i have the key thing to know about the cotton club as you just asked about speakeasy yeah. things is that black people initially couldn't go into the cotton club okay but the venue featured many of the most popular black entertainers of the era so right. Like I say, like Duke Ellington played there, Billie Holiday, like mm-hmm. a lot of the artists you would know from that yeah. era and the Harlem Renaissance, which again, I guess if, if anyone doesn't know what the Harlem Renaissance, should probably explain that yeah. in terms of, it's kind of what it sounds like. It's a renaissance in Harlem, in New York of black music, art, culture. It, mm. Everyone had gathered there. You're talking, it's not long after slavery has essentially ended. Yeah. You're in the Jim Crow era, which is specific laws that, they're limiting black people's rights essentially, yeah. and yeah, so it was like a way to for for black the black community to kind of express their own histories and mm-hmm. cultures and things like that. Yeah. So obviously through the literature and the arts and and the music as well, they were able to tell their own stories. Yeah, exactly, which is incredibly important. And you have all these massive writers and artists and yeah musicians, but I think the writing, especially from the Harlem Renaissance, is what's kind of lived on the most. Yeah, hundred percent. So, yeah, so some of the most popular clubs in Harlem were exclusively for white audiences. So performing there is kind of bittersweet for black artists because you can't play for your own people. Mm. But by playing there, you sort of make it big in the mainstream because you're playing for the white yeah. people who can make it happen. It's an interesting paradox. That. So it's a bit weird. So, like, for example, Langston Hughes, who is one of these writers that I'm saying who, I mean, his name resounds Familiar. now. Yeah. yeah. He described the Cotton Club as a Jim Crow club for gangsters and moneyed whites. Wow. So it's very, like... Playing there makes um, Rosetta's career it kind of sets her off on the path to stardom. But mm-hmm. at the same time, she's playing a club that for a lot of the time it ran and was open, black people couldn't go in. It changed a little bit later on, but then there's descriptions of it, people saying it was like a zoo if you were in there as a black person because all the white people are just looking at you. Yeah. yeah, and then the performers are all black because they're the most talented people in Harlem, yeah, obviously. 100%. And everyone's just ogling. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of mixed feelings Doesn't about that Doesn't sound very one. pleasant. No, but it, like I say, it, it started so many it's like music. like a stepping stone. It's, yeah, yeah, it's a massive okay. institution in that sort of area and that sort of time. So she continues to record during World War II and was one of only two gospel artists who were able to record V-discs for troops overseas. So V-discs was like, that was like a label set up to send records, like okay. armed forces. Yeah. And she's one of only two gospel oh, artists wow. that was part of that. Yeah. Um, in 1945, her single Strange Things Happening Every Day was the first gospel single to cross over onto the Billboard race charts. Wow. Specifically the Harlem Hit Parade. And it's the, this is the song that has been referred to as the first rock and roll record. Really? Is her, this single. Wow. Her guitar playing in particular was so well received. 
and that was massive especially considering that masculinity was directly linked to guitar skills at this time yeah, so 100%. i mean i guess it kind of is still but so she's she was often offered the backhanded compliment that she could play like a man that was kind of right so it's like mm-hmm. oh you're really good you play like a man she's yeah like, oh, whatever or like i guess you're really good for a woman <laughs> yeah exactly yeah exactly that sort of I backhanded think compliment. that though especially when you think of like a lot of the female musicians like obviously yeah. Debbie Harry in mm. you know that she was different. She was you don't have a a female you know fronted rock band yeah. really. Really, I mean, there's a few now. Yeah, obviously, I'm gonna get defensive. Paramore, you know, but okay. they're they're poppy now. But yeah. I mean, like if I said to you, but name in, the in biggest like, guitar like, players yeah, right that, now, the height of of like rock and roll, yeah. especially through the 70s and 80s. Absolutely, and like if and I said rare. name the biggest guitar players right now, you're gonna name like Slash. You're gonna name you know you're not yeah. gonna name like. Even my like myself, I'm a music nerd. They would be the first people I would go to, mm-hmm. which is you know it's bad, but that's kind of yeah. the way it is, I guess. So in 1946, she meets the singer Marie Knight after seeing her perform at a Mahalia Jackson concert in mm-hmm. New York. And two weeks later, she literally turns up on Knight's doorstep, and she goes like, "Let's go on the road and tour." And so they tour the gospel circuit for a number of years. And Knight sings and plays the piano, and Tharp sings and plays both gu- guitar and piano. Yeah. Um, they record several hits, including Up Above My Head together, and supposedly while on tour, they became lovers oh. and engaged in a relationship, which was basically an open secret, essentially. Yeah. So this, again, was obviously major for music fans who are like LGBTQ at this time because they're getting to see a black queer woman at the top of the music industry. Yeah, revolutionary, really. Honestly. So Gail Ward wrote a biography about Tharp in 2007 called Shout, Sister, Shout, which is kind of the be-all and end-all of books about, about Rosetta. And in that, she wrote, For homosexuals in her audiences, rumours about Rosetta's sexuality might have been liberating and an invitation to look for telltale signs of affirmation of their own veiled existence. Mm. So it's massive yeah. for, for those people. So from about 1949, their popularity t- takes like a sudden downturn because Mahalia oh. Jackson starts to eclipse Tharp in popularity. Like there's no real reason for yeah. it. They just aren't as big. And just their relationship friends. eventually ends anyway. And in 1951, Tharp got married to her third husband and manager, Russell Morrison, in Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. And this concert, like it was like a big promo stunt, basically, drew 25,000 people and loads of them brought gifts. To this, wow. To this wedding on stage yeah. that they did. Good honor, good idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And other artists have done it since, and it's been this massive publicized thing. Really? But she's like the first woman and the first person to do that, so yeah. So in 1964, the folk revival is at its height in the USA. Uh-huh. Um, again, don't know how much you know about the folk. I don't. <laughs> revival. I don't, I don't really know anything <laughs> Well, I, I guess Bob Dylan is the obvious person yeah. from that time. So she's booked for the folk, blues, and gospel caravan tour in England, and she plays this really famous gig. So if you type her name into YouTube, this is the first thing that's going to come up, basically. So she plays a famous gig in May at an abandoned railway station on Wilbraham Road in Manchester. So it's literally here, and it was broadcast nationwide by Granada TV. Yes. This footage is, like, top-notch. You can hear everything. It's on YouTube. If you type in Sister Rosetta Tharp, it's, like, the first thing that comes up. I'll have to have a listen. So, like, she's performing on one platform, and then the audience are sitting across the tracks on the other platform. And so it's all this like theatrical thing. Like they've set it up like a western. There's like 
wagons and like yeah. bales of hay and all this. And you can just picture that. Yeah, it's really it's, cool. And and this, she doesn't even have a mic. Like she's just projecting her voice so much they're just hearing it yeah. on the other side. And that's I guess one of the skills of being a gospel singer. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, and if you watch it, it's this like cold and rainy, like miserable day, which she gets sounds out of this like horse drawn. <laughs> well, exactly. So, you know, it just sounds like England. Really. <laughs> um, she gets out of this horse drawn carriage and she walks like royalty. And she, Does like, she have walks... a rooster. <laughs> She does. She does have a rooster. Damn. She missed a trick there, especially with like the barnyard theme around. Exactly. Her. Yeah. Um, no, sadly not with a rooster. Okay. She walks across the platform. She picks up her electric guitar. Bearing in mind it's like raining, so like despite the obvious risk of her getting like electrocuted in the rain, mm-hmm. she picks up her electric guitar and she plays "Didn't It Rain," which is a little bit ironic, but yeah, it's it's insane. This performance. This is the first thing I saw of her. And Bob Dylan actually described this performance later on, saying, I'm sure there are a lot of young English guys who picked up electric guitars after getting a look at her. Oh, wow. She's like this pinnacle. Like, you're talking Bob Dylan, you're talking Little Richard, you're talking Elvis. Like, all these people are influenced by her, and we've never heard of her. I know. That is. Even though she's this major recording artist that was big at the time. So then, so sadly, you're going to have to get to obviously passing away at some point. So she suffered a stroke in 1970. And after that, one of her legs was amputated as a result of complications from diabetes. Oh, bless. And then on the 9th of October, 1973, the day before a scheduled recording session, she passed away in Philadelphia, where she'd been living with her mother in like quite a modest house as a result of another stroke. And I like this little detail. The funeral was really small. But Marie Knight came and did her makeup and helped select her clothing for the funeral. And she was buried in Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. Yeah. But like I say, this is a woman who shaped every artist you can think of in rock and roll. Like, she literally, like, I would argue she invented rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you hear of, you know, nowadays, you know, for the past 50 years, everyone's gone, you know, I was influenced by by Elvis, by Mm. Bob Dylan, Mm. by Lil Richard. But... You, so you just think that, I mean, you, you just think that's like a start <laughs> yeah. point. Yeah. Well, that's but obviously the thing. they had to be influenced by someone as well. Exactly. And especially Elvis. Elvis is like kind of hilarious to me because he's placed as this pinnacle of rock and roll. Yeah. Movement. But he was literally like, he covered all these black artists and they, they don't get any credit. You know? I didn't even know that. that. Like Hound Dog's a cover. Wow. That's okay. not his song. You know what I mean? Like one of his biggest songs. If Maybe I said to you what's an Elvis song. Maybe being ignorant, but I I. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. The, the basis of all of our popular music right now, well, I guess it is when like, it comes down yeah. to it, is by music that's come from people of colour and specifically yeah. black people in America yeah. through time. Like That is literally all of our music is shaped by that. Folk music came from them, which then mm-hmm. led to rock and roll music, gospel music. When you look at the charts in like the 60s, they had like, it was under the, the name race music or rhythm and blues music. Mm-hmm. And that was just a basically a way of saying like to white kids, like, oh, that's like black music, don't buy that. But right. then you get Elvis then basically recording that sort of music and suddenly it's acceptable. Popularizing it. Yeah. And it's kind of, when you look at it that way, I mean, this is why I found the music stuff I did in my American studies degree so interesting because you're finding out about all of this, these artists that you just never ever heard of. Yeah. And how they were influenced by these people. Like, Sister Rosetta Tharp. Yeah. Um, it's it's madness, really. Uh, we could do a whole separate <laughs> podcast yeah. episode just me talking about music. But she's had lots of post-death sort of accolades given to her. So not like just a few years after she passed away. Well, I say just a few years, about 20 years after she passed away. <laughs> the just US Postal few. Service issued a 32 cent commemorative stamp to honour her on the 15th of July, 1998. In 2007, she was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. Yeah. In 2008, a concert was held to raise funds for a gravestone that was placed later that year and on January 11th was 
Sister Rosetta Tharp Day in Pennsylvania. Um, a Pennsylvania historical marker was approved for her home in the Yorktown neighborhood of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. In 2016, the musical play Mary and Rosetta, based on the relationship between Tharp and Mary Knight, was opened at the Atlantic Theatre Company in New York. It Literally, the list goes on. In 2017, she was listed as a nominee for the 2018 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions. So yeah. she wasn't even... We're talking 2018. She's not in the Rock wow. and Roll Hall of Fame. So on December the 13th, 2017, she was elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as an early influence. So she is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now. I literally could go on, like, Frank Turner released an album early, like, early mm-hmm. this year, yeah. late last year, that was all about women. Literally kind of what this podcast is about. It's called No Man's Land, if you've not listened to it. And every song on that is about a different woman for history that he thinks. Really? Yeah, it's incredible. He's done a podcast explaining I them all. I have no idea about that. Yeah, yeah. So he, really cool. his album is, you know, he's using his platform to lift up women, I yeah. guess. And there's a, there's a song on that called Sister Rosetta. Mm-hmm. all about how he's like she needs to be in the rock and roll hall of fame like yeah. why is she not in it so yeah that's definitely worth a listen as well i guess mm-hmm. and this this just <laughs> bummed me out but on a sad note on the 25th of june 2019 the new york times magazine listed tharp amongst hundreds of artists whose material was destroyed in the 2008 universal fire oh my gosh so really? basically there was a fire on the universal back lot like obviously in 2008 and about 118,000 to 175,000 audio master tapes of all these different artists were destroyed. Destroyed. So they have obviously, like if you go on Spotify and type her in, she's there, but the master tapes of a lot of her music yeah. has been lost, basically. Wow. She's one of obviously thousands of artists that happened to. Oh my gosh. But that only came out at the end, like sort of mid of last year. But yeah, if I'm going to sum her up, I guess. Yeah, why is she, why is she your 10th muse? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Gail Wald, who wrote that biography about her, sort of sum it up for me Mm -hmm. she said when you see elvis presley singing early in his career imagine he is channeling sister rosetta tharp it's not an image i think we're used to thinking about when we think of rock and roll history we don't think about the black woman behind the young white man yeah and i think that sums it up really Mm -hmm. she influenced i mean that list of names at the top that she influences it's mad she gave little richard his start like yeah that is. she you know all these different people um i'm sure it was um John, yeah, it was Johnny Cash. When he got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he said about how she was an influence in his speech. Good. So it's like all these massive rock songs you can think of, a lot of those go back to she had this evangelical gospel style. She got a lot of like, you know, she got a lot of flack for the fact that she was playing. She always kept her music gospel. It was always mm-hmm. very like, um, you know, praising and, and very evangelical but she was playing it to this music that a lot of people would like describe as like devil music she was playing electric guitar yeah she got a lot of kind of flat from the gospel community for that but she always stuck to those roots and that's her experimental style and the way that she blended kind of urban blues and like folk arrangements and like she just she's one of the people who has created this genre that now we associate with these like men yeah and i think she should get her due really and um i agree with frank turner on his album that she deserves to get her due and um yeah so she's my 10th mutes because anyone who is into american music through time or the history of rock and roll she should be like top of your list about yeah influences for everyone mm-hmm. and i think her life's incredible she the fact that she mastered the guitar at like four years old. That's mad. <laughs> she's like That's this mad. musical prodigy and, and shaped American music and, and now like, the, I guess, the music of the world as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Sister Rosetta Tharp. So wow. definitely YouTuber and watch a play on that like yeah. train platform in Manchester. I she's will. like, 
just sassing it up and playing this like mad guitar like solo and she's got the rain's coming down and I'm like you come from America and you stood in the rain in Manchester and it's one of the most like iconic performances yeah um but yeah so definitely watch that I will definitely after now I've heard about her Mm -hmm. I'm gonna go and check out all the music and see if I can find the links between Mm. obviously like the famous men and her and her yeah 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 she's my my 10th muse great that was really interesting i really liked that yeah that's why i was excited to talk about it to get and talk about music is fun for me yeah and um especially something that you've spent like a big chunk of your degree doing (laughs) yeah um anyone who's listened to this who knows me from uni is probably oh i know all this i feel like (laughs) i've sat in these classes with you siobhan but yeah i just think she's really interesting Mm -hmm. and yeah i think that's it was for this week yeah yeah, that's the yeah, end. That's it. No. We're gonna end there. Um, thanks so much for listening. Um, we say this every week, but you know, follow, like, subscribe. Um, we're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, you can literally find us anywhere that you can get podcasts. So yeah. please give us a listen. Um, subscribe to us if you like it. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts mm-hmm. because it would mean a lot to us. We'd love we love to hear people's feedback. Yeah. And if you've got a 10th Muse you want us to uh, cover, you can send us an email. That's 10thmusepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us or Instagram us. There's loads of different ways. And thank you to the people who have been sort of sharing the podcast for yeah. why we have noticed it and it's really nice to yeah. see. We have these stats and it's really interesting to see where it's come from. <laughs> yeah. So I love the fact that we, we have 3% of our listeners in Chile. <laughs> we have 1% in Australia, thanks to my friends. I know the, ch- the Chile one we can't get too, um, too boastful about. That's one of my friends traveling right now. I but mean, shout out Saskia for listening to us around the world. from a very small group of our, yeah. our friends. So we have a very biased listener, so, like, listener yeah. audience. But yeah. Shout out to those of you who are listening to us all over the world. That yep. looks pretty cool on our anchor. Our um, stats look stats. really good right yeah. now. <laughs> they look really interesting. They look really good. Um, and yeah, so keep listening, keep sharing us. We really appreciate it. You'll hear from us next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.